The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the Home Cinema Podcast for July. Coming up, we review the SIM2 Lumis 3D projector and Samsung D7000 3D LED TV. Plus, Chris Mosley from Samsung joins us to talk about Smart TV and we discuss the results of Wimbledon in 3D and the THX video calibration course. And joining me on the Home Cinema Podcast this month, uh, we've got Steve Weathers and Mark Hodgkinson. Hi, guys. Hi, Phil. Hi, Phil. Sadly, Russell isn't with us this week. He's uh, busy sunning himself in Greece, uh, so he'll be back next month with lots to talk about audio-wise because he's uh, got lots of things in for review at the moment. Uh, but let's move back to this month and uh, one interesting projector which Steve uh, was very lucky to have three days with. It was in a UK exclusive review. Yes, it did cost £30,000, but I think it blew you away a little bit, Steve, did it not? It did indeed, Phil, it did indeed. As you say, I was lucky enough to um, get my hands on the SIM to Loomis 3DS. The S stands for solo because basically this is their... Uh, single uh, projector setup. Uh, previously, they'd done a duo, which was obviously two Loomis's stuck together effectively. This is a single projector. Yes, it retails for £30,000, or just slightly under, I think it's 5p under £30,000. But uh, uh, I think it's quite comforting in a way that you genuinely can get what you pay for sometimes in life. Uh, and although this is not a cheap projector, the performance was spectacular, um, both in 2D and in 3D. Uh, 3,000 lumens, it was a very, it was a real light engine. Um, I had to dial it right down in terms of the power of the lamp and the iris size. Uh, in, in, even then, in my, in my pitch black theatre, it was a really bright 2D image, but but better than that, a really bright 3D image, because one of the big problems with 3D quite often is that it can be a bit dim. Not so with this. Uh, I mean, light output, even in 3D, was still just under 1,000 lumens. So, you know, that's a bright image for 3D. I mean, the if I put it into comparison, the X3, X7, X9, I mean, they're putting out their maximum brightness is 1,300 lumens with a new bulb, and that's in 2D. So you can imagine with 70% light put cut, light output cut by the glasses. Um, you know that's a really bright projector for the lum- for the sim for the sim uh, two lumens that uses triple flash, uh, which is a technology that TI have developed and is only currently used uh, in the cinema, in, in professional cinemas, in commercial cinemas. Uh, so the SIM, SIM2 projector is the first uh, domestic projector to use this technology. Obviously, what it does is, as the name might suggest, it triples the frame rate to 144 um, hertz, effectively 144 frames a second um, for both eyes, which so effectively eliminates crosstalk, and I can vouch for that. I put on, um, I've got quite a few 3D Blu-rays now, so I could put quite a bit of content on the time that I had the projector. And um, and I, I, I can say I didn't see flat, uh, crosstalk once. So uh, it really is uh, quite remarkable in terms of that. So you've got no crosstalk, a very bright image, uh, a nice accurate image in terms of, you can, you can calibrate it in 2D and 3D. And for calibration, you can use their live color calibration tools, which is um, on a PC, which you connect to the projector and that that calibration tool is spectacular i mean you can dial in absolutely perfect images um in both 2d and 3d they're going to bring out i think an adapter later uh basically a filter that will go over the over the meter uh you then take measurements in 2d and then adjust for the filter 
uh, in order to create a 3D um, 3D calibration, which is quite a good idea. So uh, yeah, I mean the performance was absolutely superb. Um, you know, great blacks, um, as as with all DLP projectors, the uh, it handles motion really well. It's got a real film like quality to it that you just don't get, uh, um, unfortunately, with Elcos or um, DILA. Um, I could, I could, the rest of the analogy I could think of is, is if DILA is a bit like LCD and DLP is a bit more like plasma in terms of motion. So uh, images looked really film-like and beautiful, incredibly sharp detail. I, I checked the uh, alignment of the three chips and um, and they were perfect. So uh, so for me, the, the, the images were just spectacular on it. Um, so yes, it's not cheap, but uh, I mean, if you've got the money, then you really do get the performance out of it. And uh, the only real downside to it was that it's a bit noisy obviously with 3000 lumens that's a fair bit of heat uh and it quite had three fans built into it so it was a bit on the noisy side compared to say the x3 or the x7 um but having said that obviously if you're spending that kind of money it's custom install there'll be a hush box or it'll be too far away for you to worry about so uh all in all an absolutely spectacular uh, projector both for 2d and 3d and without doubt the best uh, 3d experience i've had at home now the forum members are going to say yeah, but it's thirty thousand pounds. I can't afford one, so why should I be interested? Well, same argument really as we have with the forty-two thousand VX two hundred, the Panasonic. Uh, yes, it's expensive, but this technology will filter down uh, into cheaper products uh, over the next couple of years. So, whilst this is the first projector to have triple flash, for example, I can only assume that, you know in two or three years' time, um, a lot more DLP projectors will have triple flash at a much more reasonable price. So all it really is is giving you a glimpse of things to come in a way. You know, but what it does show is that already we're capable of producing an, an incredible 3D image in the home. Um, and hopefully over the natural course of, you know, as products evolve and develop um, and prices drop, that, that kind of technology will filter down to more affordable consumer products um, in the next couple of years. So it's, it's kind of like, uh, I always think about those those products as yes, they are um, they're, 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 um, aspirational products that you aspire to. Um, but ultimately, they will become the norm, uh, you know, over the course of time in the same way that high def once upon a time was, you know, was was a very expensive product. And now it's, it's standard um, and 3D TVs were very expensive and now they're gradually dropping in price. So this will, too. Uh, and in, in, so in reviewing these kind of products, really, we're giving you a, a taster of what's to come in a, in a year or two down, down the line. The other question uh, that's going to get asked, <laughs> forgive me, uh, but is uh, the black levels better than the JVCs? No. I would say that's the one area where the JVC still have the edge. For my, you know, certainly, you know, I think anyone who's seen a JVC knows that they, the blacks are spectacular on them, and, and they really are setting the. I think setting the standard within 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 projectors that I've seen, at least, um, the, the JVC sets the standard for black levels and still does. And that's the one area where uh, where the sim can't quite. They're good blacks, but not quite as good as the JVC. So still, that JVC still king as far as black levels go. But um, you know. There are so many other areas where where, where the sim is strong. Uh, I mean, and black isn't everything. Um, but yes, I think the JVC uh, is still the king as far as black levels go. I mean, obviously the the point that that we're missing there by mentioning black levels is the fact that that this sim is a light cannon. This sim uh, is three thousand lumens. Um, if you're having to dial it down for two D, it's giving you loads of headroom to then dial yeah. it back up for 3D then. Exactly. And also, you know, I mean, what are you going to remember is blacks, as you point out, Phil, that's one part of the image. But it's also the dynamic range. It's, it's, it's from going black to peak white. Uh, you know, and the brighter the image, the more punch it has. And, uh, and I, I tend to find that you know, a very, very bright image uh, has a lot more impact when you're watching something. And, and as you say, Phil, the brighter the image, the better the 3D is going to be. 
um, you know, too often. I mean, you know what it's like at the cinema where people are watching a, 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 a 2D image at the cinema. It's 14 foot Lamberts. That's the standard. Um, a, a 3D image in the cinema is four foot Lamberts, which is incredibly dim, really. Um, you can you can you can get 14 foot Lamberts in 3D off of a off of off the sim too. So um, that that's 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 the kind of 3D performance that uh, you're not even seeing in the cinema. Um, so we need to bear that in mind when you start talking about things like black levels. And obviously, that, uh, we're, obviously, we're talking about cinema rooms as well. So I don't want people to pick up on that last point um, the wrong way in terms of brightness, because uh, your image should never be fatiguing. So it shouldn't be too bright. No, just exactly. wanted to make that point. And we are talking about a back cave uh, in terms of your home theatre room. Yes, that's true. Okay, so that's it. The same two. Yes, it's pricey, but goddamn, it's good according to Steve. So let's move over to Mark. Mark, uh, a completely different product, an LED TV from Samsung. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Phil. Uh, another 3D product, but not quite so grand as the Sim 2, perhaps. It was the uh, D7000 LED LCD from Samsung. Um, we had a lot of questions on the forum uh, to ask if it was the D8000 in, uh, in disguise. Uh, in a different bezel, as it were, uh, and and the short answer to that question is yes. That's to say, it same it shares the uh, same striking, ultra thin bezel design, the same excellent scaling, um, video processing, excellent black levels in a in a very bright room. It, it holds up really well. I don't know what filter they've got going on there, but it it really works. It also shares the same top notch calibration suite as the D8000. We were really able to dial in some some top results there. But we did discover something uh, when we we had the uh, Samsung lined up against a few other manufacturers' TVs at the, the recent THX course. Um, it was something that had been troubling, well, troubling me particularly for a while after seeing the D8000. I couldn't quite put my finger on, but it, it's definitely um, adding some level of processing to uh, motion handling that uh, we can't defeat even when the Motion Plus and LED Motion Plus are completely deactivated in the user menus. Uh, it's slightly disappointing, especially for uh, Blu-ray material. Yeah, and I'm not sure how much time you've spent with it, Phil, but I think uh, Steve agrees with me that um, Samsung's Smart Hub offering is probably the uh, industry leading standard at the moment with uh, its unified, uh, well, hub, of course, for uh, everything, every extra feature going on the uh, TV, and the, there are plenty of those. Like yourselves, I've had a, a test sample of a Blu-ray player from Samsung here, which has a smart TV on. Got to say, I've been using it quite a bit uh, in terms of catch-up TV. Uh, the feature for me uh, that I find most useful is the BBC iPlayer. Uh, but also for searching your network, you can quickly search to see what videos you have available to you to watch through the system and so on, and it ranks it in different ways and so on, which I haven't had a great deal of time to play about with. But uh, there's other features like Twitter. Uh, I'm getting quite addicted to Twitter these days, uh, at Phil Hinton, by the way, if you want to follow me getting quite addicted at that so having those features uh, on the tv as well and of course i don't have a samsung tv this is coming from the blu-ray player i think it's great yeah phil i agree I, i'm exactly as you i've, I've got a, a samsung uh, blu-ray player straight um pvr with smart tv built into it and uh i've got to say previously I, I was a bit agnostic towards the whole concept of smart tv but i find myself using it quite a lot like you uh, particularly iplayer i use that a lot um and also some of the other internet features uh, and and Facebook and Twitter. So yeah, it's, uh, and also I've been using my um, my iTouch as a controller for it because there's a an app you can use. Uh, so you have the keyboard on your on your iTouch uh, or iPad or iPhone, 
Uh, yeah, I think that's the key that. to it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the key to it, Steve. Is the interface really? If you've got that kind of thing available to you, it's, it's a much better experience. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're talking about um, the Samsung Smart TV system. There are others out there. I mean, uh, with the same name, uh, LG, I've got their system up and running at the moment. Now, I think Steve, I think you're the only uh, person on the team at the moment because Mark doesn't get his LG till next week, who's actually played about with the system. So, how does the LG system compare? It's uh, it's actually quite similar in terms of the way it's laid out. Um, they as, as as Samsung have their Smart Hub, and um, LG have their home screen. They're both called Smart TV, uh, and yes, the layouts are, are strangely familiar. Although I think personally, I, I preferred the Samsung um, Smart TV platform to the LG one in terms of uh, of um, usability. Uh, but they are quite similar. One of the things that LG's done, though, which is which is really annoying, is that they've in their sort of home page, if you like, there's also the setup uh, menu to get to get into setup to do things like calibration or you know that sort of stuff. There isn't a button on the remote. You have to go into the home menu, and then go and select setup, and then go into that to get into the picture functions and the sound uh, controls and all that kind of stuff, um, which is really annoying if you're trying to get in and out of. Uh, say well if you're calibrating a tv for example you have to keep going through the home page to get to the setup menu um that that, that i could have done without frankly but um otherwise they're, they're quite similar and the same with um panasonic with their viera connect um and sony who have that well i suppose people who anyone's got a ps3 will be quite familiar with their crossbar uh, menu system um so uh, yeah i've got to say i agree with mark uh, of the ones that i've experienced and, and and that's probably most of them so far this year uh, I've definitely found the Samsung platform to be the most user-friendly uh, and, and uh, has some of the nicest features in, included in it. Uh, some news interest today from uh, Panasonic, actually. They've just uh, announced the official launch of their developer um, functionality for our third parties to get involved with developing apps for Vieira Connect. Okay. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, things develop in the future there. Well, that, that's, a, that's a pretty um, bold move. Uh, for a company like Panasonic to be doing that, to be opening it up to developers, because in the past they've always had a closed system approach to uh, any interactivity uh, on their TV. So it's good to see that uh, the likes of Panasonic and, and Sony are, are following that route and, and getting developers on board, uh, because that's what Samsung's done out the gate, really. Uh, and I think it's probably why their system, uh, in terms of what we've seen so far is it seems a little bit further ahead so join us to talk about uh, smart tv the ethos behind it and uh, what samsung are doing with the technology is chris mosley from samsung good evening chris good evening phil and uh, chris we, we've met a few times i've been through the, uh, the demonstration the, the other guys on the podcast here uh, we all went down to to brentford and uh, we sat in on one of your training uh, seminars uh, about the technology but I, I guess the the listeners will want to know first off you know what is smart tv uh smart tv is akin to um what a, what smartphones are to mobile phones uh so it's bringing lots more content lots more applications lots more usability uh through um what is probably the most used piece of technology in most people's lives which is the tv so if you were to speak to someone who has no idea uh, of what smart tv is how would you tell them in a sentence uh, it's a device that allows you to lean back and enjoy probably just about any content that you want to enjoy 
um, at the touch of your at the touch of a, a button. Really, it's it brings everything in one place. Every manufacturer on the market seems to have their own version of uh, of smart TV, or, or they call it different names, but uh, primarily it's it's kind of the same thing. Why do you think there isn't a, an industry standard that says everybody should be on the same platform? Why why have manufacturers gone their own way? Uh, this is quite an interesting topic. We were discussing this in quite a lot of detail at the uh, the Intellect conference yesterday, um, and largely, if you if you look at the parallels with mobile phones or, or even with PCs, there's not there's not one platform. Um, there's there's several. Um, people are always going to have their their favourites. Um, at, at the moment, we're in uh, the, the infancy of the smart TV era, if you like, where the differences depend on what uh, manufacturers have on their platform in terms of content. Uh, but as as time goes on, largely everything will, will be the same. I suppose a bit like um, Microsoft used to have a certain amount of software and Apple didn't. Um, nowadays, it, it really comes down to how um, that software is implemented. The very same, I think, will happen on um, the smart TV platform. So it will be down to um, the implementation of, of certain applications, um, whereas the content will be largely the same. Um, but to try and to try and get everyone to have one platform um, would be extremely difficult. Um, it, it, as I say, if you you just look at the mobile and, and PC worlds, you you couldn't suggest that there is there's one operating system that works sort of across all platforms. It, it wouldn't happen. One thing. Um they get raised on our forums quite a bit is is when someone asks about smart TV the the standard response seems to be well it's BBC iPlayer and the internet um, it's a little bit more than that though isn't it? it? It definitely is I mean the the internet is another interesting one um, you can get smart TVs that don't have internet browsing um, in fact most smart TVs don't have internet browsing um, the Samsung platform um, offers probably the the best internet browsing in terms of uh, typical what people would, would class as internet browsing through a, through a standard browser using URLs. Um, but you can browse the internet in, in several different ways, and apps is one of them. So, um, I mean, you mentioned iPlayer. Yes, iPlayer is, is an important one, um, but there's other important ones. So we're finding that we're, we're releasing apps all the time, um, and, and certain apps are, are used a significant amount. Um, so there's there's one called Muzu, for example, which is um, music videos, um, and and it it's got a huge huge audience already, um, and it's it's not been around as long as iPlayer, and it hasn't had anywhere near the amount of of, of airtime as as iPlayer. Um, so that it won't be it won't just be iPlayer that is the the attraction of smart TVs. You have a smartphone, you have a laptop, you have a computer, you have a QWERTY keyboard. Using a TV remote, how do you get around the fact that you need a QWERTY keyboard? Uh, there's different ways of entering data. Um, so on our TVs, for example, we have um, different different style remotes. So um, a bit like the old laptops with a little joystick in the middle of the keyboard, um, the remotes have got a little touch pad that you can you can navigate um, the the user interface and and online browsing with that with that touchpad in the middle, um, you can enter text as you would on a, um, a standard non-touchscreen phone um, using the T9 keyboard. Um, and also all of our um, smart TVs and AV devices um, can be used to, uh, can be connected to a, a smartphone, be it um, 
Android or um, iOS um, and use the actual um, phone itself as the interface and it's two-way because it works over Wi-Fi. So if, as you're typing, it types on the screen and the apps actually integrate, um, in, sorry, interact with, the, uh, with, the, with the, um, the device that you have in your hand. Chris, before I, I let the other guys come in with, with their questions about the system, do you think smart TV's been a little bit forgotten because the main push at the moment seems to be 3D TV? Uh, I'd say totally the opposite. 3D is, is part of what Samsung bundle as, as a smart TV. So 3D is part of the smart experience. But 3D isn't our main driver at the moment. The main driver, certainly for Samsung, is, is smart TV. Chris, um, I know that you can buy an adapter um, so that you can use the TV with Skype, for example, and do uh, video calls. Um, is there, are there any plans, because it always seems to me one of the better, would be a good idea if you could uh, build a small camera and microphone into the TV itself and have that, because you've already got Wi-Fi built into your TVs. Is there any plans to do that in the future, do you think? Yeah, hi, Steve. Um, the, that's, that's an interesting one. I mean, when you build anything into anything else, what, what you have to remember as a manufacturer is you, you have to aim at the majority. If we were to build in Skype cameras, um, things like that, if you build in Wi-Fi, if you, whatever you build into a device, it adds a cost. Um, and you can only reasonably expect people to pay for things that they're going to use. So if you build in a Skype camera, at the moment we do sell a Skype camera specifically for our TVs. Um, and it's selling in the shops for, for around about £130. Um, so you can reasonably expect that if a camera was built into a TV, it would add the same kind of premium, um, a retail value. So if you had no interest in purchasing um, a Skype camera, but it was forced upon you because it was built into the TV, then you can see why some people might be slightly aggrieved at having to pay for that. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I just think that, uh, from my perspective, having, having spent some time recently with um, a 55-inch UE8000, 8, which is obviously built, built in Wi-Fi, which is great for accessing smart TV um, very easily, um, I thought I, I would have been quite a big user of the Skype if I had a, if I had a camera built in already. You know, you could, I could bring up my parents in Spain or my sister in Edinburgh and chat to them. And, and I probably would have done that quite often from, from the TV itself rather than just using Skype um, on, on my laptop. Oh, I, th I think it's I think it's like anything again if you if you draw parallels with with laptops um, laptops you used to have to add a webcam webcams used to be 60 70 80 pounds plus uh, now a webcams probably between five and ten pounds um, I suspect the same will happen with TVs and that um, in the not too distant future you'll start seeing TVs with um, with Skype cameras built in but but at this stage we, we have no plans to do so um, and as I say, the, the price of the price of a, an additional camera, um, which is in fact an HD camera, um, is is typically about 130 pounds at the moment in store. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's all just move, gradually moving towards the television being, I suppose, the focal point of, of the living room in every sense, both in terms of the internet, in terms of what you're watching, what you're listening to, um, all the content being delivered to it. Uh, and, and I was always quite uh, slightly agnostic about um, about smart TV uh, until recently. And now that I've got the, uh, I'm reviewing the uh, the BD uh, eight eight five hundred. Um, BDD eight five zero zero. The the, yep. the uh, um, smart Blu-ray player with yeah. Um, free view. Uh, and it's great. I mean, I love smart TV now. I'm, I'm obviously always 
using it for catch-up TV. Um, I like the way that when you uh, you can do a search uh, for a video, it finds the the highest resolution video it can find, uh, which which I think is quite a good, nice feature. It's, it's believe unique to Samsung as well. So yeah, without a question, you, that's unique. If you search for um, if you search for uh, as you say things like YouTube videos, it will automatically default to the highest resolution, whereas a lot of other products will only show the the lowest resolution available. Um, so yeah, that's that's a nice feature. Also, you mentioned searching. We've we've got our own proprietary search engine built into all of the smart products. So that's Smart AV and Smart TV. So if you search for anything, it will automatically search for certain apps that have actually been um, developed to, to work with that and more and more are coming on board. It will search your home network, so your laptop, your phone, anything that you've got connected, it will search for. So if you're looking for a particular film and you forgot that you had it on a hard drive connected away somewhere, um, it will find that so you don't need to pay for it on an on-demand service or um, on a subscription service. It's kind of like a, an extension of what TiVo does at the moment. TiVo will go go in and search YouTube, search through its EPG, what its on-demand services, and then you'll take it a bit further and you're, you're actually searching uh, your network devices too. Exactly, and, and there's also another service called Your Video, which uh, learns, so it's a database, and um, it, it learns what you watch. Um, so yeah, again, start similar. To, start similar, yeah. to recommend. So something that's been, been quite uh, talked about in the industry is that if you're given too many choices it becomes harder to make a decision um, so with with having almost well millions of, of pieces of content uh, to watch at your fingertips it's very difficult to, to, to watch something so um, something that was discussed um, at the intellect conference yesterday was um, iTunes and how out of millions and millions and millions of tunes available for download nearly 90% of them have not had a single download. Um, the ones that get downloaded most are the ones that are actually recommended through the iTunes interface or by being downloaded by other people. Um, if you said to someone, name your favourite song, the chances are without any prompting, they would find it quite difficult to do that. Um, and it's exactly the same. If you sit in front of a TV and you can watch literally anything becomes quite difficult to choose yeah. something. So there has to be some kind of mechanism to say, how about this? How about that? Just as you have with, with linear TV. Chris, do you think, um, because it's a connected service, do you think that the, the broadband speeds in the UK are, are possibly holding up what could be possible with smart TV? Uh, again, another very interesting point and another one that was discussed um, over the last couple of days. Um, it's a worry of mine. Um, the... the uh, Government committed to making sure that everyone had two megabyte, sorry, two megabit broadband um, by 2013 available to them. That's now been pushed back to 2015. Um, we're already one of the the lowest um, averages in in Europe in terms of uh, internet connection. Um, if if all of a sudden several people in a room start logging onto one particular or streaming video on on laptops it starts to fall over. Um, if you all of a sudden have lots and lots of the population trying to watch TV over what is not really a substantial internet connection, again, it's going to fall over. Um, that is a big, big issue um, and one that, uh, that's, that uh, we discussed at, at length um, recently. Um, it, it, does, it does need sorting out. It really does need sorting out. Chris, is, is your system like other, others out there where 
you encourage developers to come up with uh, applications? Is it an open system? It's it's one where they're encouraged. Yes, certainly. There's a very strict QA process, so it's not like uh, Android where anyone can release something and it can be of almost any quality. And it's left to the the community to to filter out the uh, the the not so good from the good. Um, everything goes through a QA process, an internal QA process. But yes, anyone can develop for it, um, and there's SDKs available. Um, but yeah, we, we've we've run competitions quite quite publicly, run competitions for for developers, and and given private developers quite significant amounts of of prize money for developing certain apps. Where do you think next the um, smart TV, Chris, extended from from what it does at the moment? I think it will become. I think it will start to integrate more with with other devices. Mm-hmm. So we're already seeing certain apps that that integrate with mobile phones, for example. Um, but I would suggest that it will it will go some way to start integrating with with other devices, and and just being more streamlined and, and more um, more suitable for for everyday use. Um, the recommendation service, as I say, we're Samsung are, are certainly ahead of the game there. Um, I can see that getting better and better, and and just and just more user friendly. Chris, is it possible to um, customize the Smart Hub? Yeah, Smart Hub's um, customizable in in that you can you can delete apps if you don't want them. You can download apps if you do. Um, you can on the Samsung system you can put them in certain folders, and um, you can also have different users. So going back to the recommendation service, if if there's four people in a family, um, you might. Um, have four different logins. So when it's, when the system's logged out, it will only recommend family-friendly viewing. When you're logged in under your own particular username, um, it will revert to what you've watched rather than what the family's watched, and and specifically recommend to you rather than uh, rather than general use. Chris, I was uh, talking about the future again. I was uh, watching a report with great interest uh, today on the internet on on one of these videos that's that's uploading on a new site. Um, and it was uh, in Los Angeles. They were looking at the uh, uh, the fact that the studios are looking at streaming the movies on the same day as release to owners of home theater systems in America. Now it's not cheap. It's it's about twenty thousand dollars for the set top box, and then it's about five hundred dollars for the film on day of release. Uh, but with Hollywood looking at that system and, and obviously doing that for for the more wealthy clientele at this moment in time, is that something that you see in the future for smart TV where we'd be able to watch the film either at home or go out to the cinema to see it? Yeah, I mean, without talking too much out of turn, um, the fact that we have a platform that can deliver video on demand and studios can produce video on demand, it perhaps doesn't leave a lot of room for middlemen um, in the future. I mean, there's obviously that's obviously simplifying it extremely um, significantly, and there's obviously other bits that do need to happen. But um, yeah, I mean that that kind of is where um, the ultraviolet platform is 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 heading towards. I would suggest, Chris, when you're um, I've used the I have actually uh, used my um, i touch actually to control the uh, Samsung TV, which is great because as you say, you can use it as a keypad, as a keyboard. Um, is it possible to stream content? Back from the TV onto uh, onto a, a device like a tablet. It is. It's not possible on the iPhone just yet. Um, it is possible on two uh, on 
two or three of the TVs um, where you, the TV actually re-encodes and um, transmits the, the data, either the data that's on the screen or from a different channel or different input um, at the moment to um, some of the Samsung Galaxy products. Um, but yes, it will be being extended to, to other products, I believe. Um, and yeah, so the, the, the typical example, if, if one person's watching one program um, on the main TV, then boyfriend or girlfriend can sit there and, and watch a, a second channel um, on a portable device. Um, you can control the TV from it. So for example, if you were watching a film and you wanted to watch the rest of it up in bed or you wanted to go and cook or move to a different room, um, you can do that and then turn the TV off from the tablet once it's once it's finished, or turn the TV off as you leave the room, uh, and it will continue playing on the on the portable device. One thing I I want you to pick up on there, Chris, is uh, people don't need to go and uh, if like say they bought their TV last year before smart TV came out, they don't necessarily have to buy a new TV to get the smart TV system, though, do they? That's definitely correct. Um, so. With all of our AV devices, so anything that is Blu-ray or anything Blu-ray home theatre um, is what we class as an upgrade to smart device. So plug it into any TV that's got an AV input, so that, that's pretty much any TV made in the last 25 years, and it's a, a smart TV then, so you have access to the full smart hub. Um, most of the apps, some of the apps are slightly behind uh, where TV are, but in, in, in general terms, what's on the TV will be available on the, the Blu-ray platform um, within about two or three weeks afterwards. So um, that that's exactly, um, that is exactly what we're saying to, to people. If you don't want to buy a new TV, if you've just upgraded, um, which let's face it, a lot of people have with, with the uh, developments in the TV market in the last five or six years, uh, then yes, you can you can add an external box um, and upgrade to smart TV that way. I, I know we're moving away from the TV slightly here, but uh, uh, your role at Samsung is, is obviously the AV side of things. Um, now, it's a well-known fact that, that flat panel TVs, um, yes, they're gorgeous, they're slim, not a lot of room for speakers in there, and sound quality uh, is maybe not quite up to... Uh, what you would get on on a thicker TV where you can get bigger drivers and so on in. Um, so in terms of AV and the whole home hub system, uh, what do you offer the the consumer? Okay, so I mean that's exactly right. We we can't um, change the laws of physics, and and a small speaker won't move as much much air as a big speaker. Um, and exactly right. The smaller the, the TV, the thinner the TV, the smaller the speakers have to be. There's certain trickery we can do to make the speakers sound slightly better than perhaps they would have done a few years ago. Um, but in general, if you want the most out of your home entertainment system, then yes, you should be adding some kind of home theatre system um, that deals with the sound. Um, obviously, the sound doesn't only uh, get used in movies. It can be used for TV. It can be used for... Um, listening to, to all sorts of music, theatre, and also gaming. So there's a lot of games now being uh, recorded in, in surround sound. Um, so ideal for, for use with, with games consoles as well. What about uh, keeping domestic harmony when you add one of these systems? What kind of things do, does Samsung offer? Uh, I mean, a lot of our products are, are design-led. Um, there's um, a certain amount of, of wireless um, in our range so we we do offer wireless rear speakers on some of the products um, they still do need plugging in people always ask the same question why is there no fully wireless systems 
Um, um, one of the main reasons is because you go through batteries extremely quickly. They're going to need some kind of, of power if they're going to be wireless. Um, so the wireless system we do has a, a control box um, at the rear, plugs into the mains, and then the speakers connect to that. So there's no wires front to back. Um, the wires that we supply um, are, are, are fairly thin, um, so you can you can quite easily conceal them under carpets, etc. Um, so you, you should be able to um, install one in a, in a normal living environment with minimal disruption to, to the living space, to be honest. Chris, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, to pop in on the podcast this month and uh, and give us your views uh, on smart TV. I guess uh, in finishing off, um, if people are still a little bit sceptical about uh, smart TV and so on, what, what would you say to them? Uh, I would say that um, it, it, it's nothing to be sceptical about. I mean, it's definitely the future of TV. Um, there's several ways that you can that you can get into smart TV without changing your your whole TV. Um, and I think it's it's really is here to stay. So uh, so give it a go. And finally, I've got to ask this question because the forum members would go mad if I didn't. Are manufacturers putting too much effort into things like 3D and um, smart TV and forgetting about the main thing on the TV, which is picture quality? Uh, definitely not. Uh, that's something that is very, very much at the forefront of Samsung's uh, development. Uh, we have a huge R&D operation uh, in Korea uh, that goes into making the TVs the, the best as possible. Um, and we've done a huge amount of work on, on video processing, video scaling, um, to the point where we would now think we're probably leading the, the industry in, in that respect um, in terms of processing 2D and 3D and indeed 2D to 3D. Uh, we're doing a huge amount of work. Um, and um, yeah, 2D, we, we still understand that even though TVs are generally 3D at the, the top end, um, 90, 95% of the viewing plus is, is done in 2D. So that is extremely important and, and very much taken into account when we're, when we're developing TVs. That is certainly the primary, uh, the primary objective. Well, thanks very much for your time, Chris. I know that the four members uh, will be appreciative of you taking uh, the last 25 minutes to go through things. And I'm sure they're going to have lots and lots of questions that they want to come back to you with. Um, so perhaps we'll see you again on the podcast soon. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for your time, Phil. Cheers, Mark. Cheers, Steve. Thanks very much, Chris. Chris. So our thanks to Chris Mosley from Samsung. Uh, Steve, some interesting points that Chris raised there. Um, The one I'm going to come back to is is the thing that's on BBC Click uh, this week, which was this set-top box, which costs 20 grand, and it's like $500 for uh, a film on release day. But that's got to be appealing for something that, that might become reality sometime in the future. I know Sky... I've done it with a couple of British films uh, in the past where they've had it on their Anytime system on the same day that it was released in the cinema. Yeah, Phil, I, I, I guess if you think about it logically, um, that's where we're heading, right? I mean, the technology's there now to deliver uh, films on day of release directly into the home. Um, from the point of view of the studio, obviously from the point of view of the studio, you know, if you can cut out the middleman entirely, then the revenue's entire, you know, it's completely yours and you don't have to give it a percentage to the the, theater, the cinema chain. So, um, yeah, I can see I can see that becoming the, 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 basically the way of the future is is is, is them releasing films directly uh, to the home rather than via a third party. Clearly, there'll be a lot of resistance from the cinema chains, but uh, but you know we're already down to three month uh, windows between cinema release and Blu-ray release. So how long is it before the release you know the release window gets shorter and shorter, and eventually it becomes day and date? 
It might also be a, a viable way of getting something like 4K into the home, uh, the, the increased resolution that the bandwidths might struggle to deliver. They could perhaps just uh, start downloading it to the fancy set-top box, uh, you know, earlier in the day, and then it'll be ready, ready for viewing at night or something. Yeah, I mean, well, Sky do that over the air at the moment with their Anytime uh, system. You know, it's downloaded for you overnight onto the box and it's stored on the box. So the technology's there as it is. And if you look at DVD, which really was the, a cash cow for, for the studios, it was it was another chance to make a, a boatload of money on your film once it'd been to the cinema, then out onto DVD. Everybody's now got DVD. But people are stopping to buying DVDs now. Uh, the market's peaked and, it, and it's now fallen in terms of revenue so they've got to be looking at, at new ways of uh, creating revenue and, and on demand or delivered to your set top box seems like the obvious choice. That's the way it's going that's for sure Yeah I can't say I'm entirely happy about that I quite like having a physical uh, product you know a, a disc in a, in a box uh, to put on my shelf rather than having it on a hard drive but uh, I think that's probably the, I think we've had a discussion before it's probably the way of the future is that uh, Everything will be delivered online, uh, be on demand, um, TV content, movies, everything. I've, I've got to say, from a personal point of view, having uh, Sky Plus and time shifting and having access to any time, it is limited any time uh, because I don't have Sky Broadband, so I can't get any time plus. But I found myself using it an awful lot in terms of watching what I want to watch when I want to watch it. And, and that seems to be the way that... Um, a, a lot of things are going. I, I know you've got the new TiVo box in for review, Mark, and and likewise that's got on demand and all sorts. Yeah, it's it's, it's got a lot really. I mean, I've, I've only had it in a few days, so I'm still getting used to it. But yeah, it, it's uh, it could very much if if you wanted it to change the way you view the television, you can create wish lists and and it will just search you know are based on actors, genres, uh, directors even, and it, and it will pick up things in your in your uh, EPG or even on the on-demand to suggest, make suggestions, record things for you if you want it to. You know, it can really, it can really change things. I mean, m- the majority of my viewing personally is, is probably 90% time-shifted as it is. And I, I could probably go 100% if, other than, you know, live football events or that or live sporting events, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm very much into it. I'd have to agree with Mark there. I think uh, most of my, my viewing content is time-shifted, partly because I hate adverts, so I usually time-shift it and then yeah. get through the adverts. But also iPlayer. I mean, nowadays, if I miss something, I'll just watch it whenever it suits me on iPlayer. Yeah, of course, you can do it, you can do it in HD as well now. Well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, on the Samsung um, Blu-ray player that I've got at the moment, that I can watch iPlayer in HD. And the picture quality is pretty good. It's, yeah, it's not bad at all, is it, generally? Streamed. Yeah. yeah. So you're right, Phil. Uh, I think our habits are already changing. Um, and why shouldn't movies change the same way that TV has? Yeah, totally. And... Just like you two, I mean, I sit on a computer all day, so I don't watch TV. I, I, I watch TV when I want to watch TV. Um, so I never watch anything unless, it, like you say, Mark, it's a, a live football game and I can laugh at England getting beat. Um, <laughs> then I'm going to be there to watch it. But otherwise, you know, I'll, I'll watch things when I want to watch them. I'll Sky Plus them or whatever, anytime them. So it's the way it's going. Um, and it all, it's all getting smarter, the whole smart TV thing. Uh, it's... It, seems to be the the way of the future i mean the tvs are only going to get smarter you just have to look at toshiba and uh, the fact that they have a cell processor uh, yeah. in, in the sevo tvs um and see the type of things that, that those tvs are doing in japan we've been promised them this year uh the next quarter of this year so hopefully we'll get them in for a review 
when you see things like that, that that's obviously the way it's going. So if uh, our listeners have any views on uh, Smart TV, if you want to ask any questions of Chris, uh, who was on t- tonight's podcast, because we'll certainly get Chris back again in the future to answer those questions, then uh, you know, leave us your questions, leave us your feedback in the forum under this podcast, and uh, I'm sure we'll answer some questions and we'll also put them to Chris to get answered. So uh, moving on from Smart TV, uh, we'll be back in a couple of ticks. The highest definition. 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 This is the AV Forums Podcast. Welcome back. And uh, before we wrap up on the podcast, we're going to talk about uh, the THX calibration course in a second. Uh, But the big event from the last uh, week or so was the BBC showing 3D for the first time on their HD channel for the uh, finals of Wimbledon. Um, I managed to see the men's final. Well, I put up with it for about an hour and then switched back to 2D, and we'll discuss why in a minute. Uh, Steve, you also caught it, so uh, let's have your views first. Yeah, obviously, it was. I think historically, BBC, the BBC have used Wimbledon as a test bed for new technology. I think the first kind of broadcasts were from Wimbledon. Uh, I certainly remember them broadcasting in surround sound from Wimbledon in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, high def broadcasts from Wimbledon, and now 3D from Wimbledon. Um, and whilst obviously it's quite exciting that that you had a you know the, the national broadcaster doing 3D broadcasts free to air over, over Freeview. Um, unfortunately, the way they decided to do it was by, by basically putting the 3D camera uh, in the royal box or right in front of the royal box. Therefore, their theory being giving you the view that you would get from the royal box, uh, which is meant to be the best view in in, in the court. But of course, it also meant that the camera was quite low down near the baseline. Um, which gave you some really, uh, you know, dynamic shots of balls coming over the net, and and and, but it always was the same view from the same side of the court. Uh, I could have done with a few more camera angles, really. Uh, sometimes you couldn't really tell what was going on on the other side of the court, particularly with serves. Um, so it was, a, I think it was, a, it was a bit sort of, it wasn't the roaring success I'd liked it to have been. It was an interesting experiment, but I think a lot of people probably. Uh, ended up watching it in 2D because you had way more, way more camera angles in 2D. Um, and obviously, they've been doing 2D broadcasts for a long time, so they're much better at it. Uh, so it was an interesting experiment and, and good to see the BBC getting involved in 3D. But uh, in terms of enhancing the tennis the way I hoped it had, I didn't think it really did. No, I, I, I totally agree with you uh, there. I, I didn't think it was... Uh a good choice on, on their behalf. I know why they did it, because it's the same as what Sky have been doing with the football recently, and that's taken the camera from, yeah, you know, the high angle that you normally get in the 2D broadcast. They brought the camera right down, so um, you're more in line with the pitch. The reason they do that is they have a far better depth, um, and, and it gives the 3D effect uh, more pop, because if you're higher up, then, then the plane doesn't quite work. You don't get that full 3D uh, image. So you, you can see why they did it, I think it was a bad idea, and and it was a bad idea for the reason that you said there, Steve, was you couldn't see the other side of the court. So, yes, it was interesting to see the height of the net. It was interesting to see exactly how much power these guys have in terms of sending that ball back across, you know, 100-odd miles an hour. Um, Certainly on serves, you know, it was good to see just how fast that serve is coming at you. I could see that, but it just needed to be mixed up a little bit, and it needed to be a little bit higher... Uh, for other shots and like you say I mean it seemed to be the same camera at the same end of the court uh, for every game Yeah the other thing I noticed um, obviously uh, they had 3D cameras during the during the actual match but after the match they interviewed the two players Nadal and uh, Djokovic on uh, on the court 
Um, and a guy came up with, the, you know, a steady cam operator came up with the camera. It was a 2D camera. It was the only camera on them, uh, directly on their faces as they were being interviewed. So they switched to 2D to 3D conversion for those scenes, which was very obvious. Uh, we, we immediately, my friend and I thought, hang on, what, what's happened to 3D? It looks terrible. And then, of course, we realized it was a 2D, 3D conversion. And they had the one camera actually up, up near the, the, the player's faces. Um, so that, that was that, that was interesting, interesting that you could immediately spot that it was a, you know, a 2D, 3D conversion with broadcasting tennis in 3D, of course, is that they're wearing white, which did make crosstalk really stand out. I don't know if you noticed, Phil, but there was a fair bit of crosstalk uh, uh, in the image I was watching. Now, maybe that was a Samsung, um, which is it was an LCD um, Samsung 3D TV that I was watching it on. But uh, I, I did notice quite a bit of crosstalk um, in the broadcast. Uh, and obviously wearing white against a green background, it tends to stand out quite a bit. I, I watched it on the VT20. Um, got to say, it, it didn't bug me in terms of it didn't really stand out that much. So maybe it was the, the Samsung that you were watching it on. What what annoyed me was the camera angles and the same the same camera angle for each game. That just, you know, that did my head in it. And eventually, it it? eventually I just thought, yeah, okay, it looks nice, but you need more cameras, etc. And I switched off and I went back to the 2D uh, version. And I, I know just reading the forums and from what people have been saying on Twitter to me and, and Facebook, that they were the same, that they watched it for a certain length of time and then uh, switched off. However, the interesting thing here is that it was Sony uh, professional uh, services that, that did the 3D side of things. And uh, we spoke about it in uh, one of our last podcasts where you were invited along. So could you see the techniques that they were talking about during your visit to Sony professional being used uh, at Wimbledon? Yeah, yeah, I definitely could feel, I, I mean, as you say, we, we, we went along to the, uh, to their event um, a couple of months ago now, um, which where, they, where they'd already been working with the BBC. Uh, and you, obviously I could see the same cameras on, on the court that they were using, um, that they were showing us on, on the, uh, the event that they held in London. Um, so yeah, it was interesting to see them actually putting all that stuff, all that theory into practice uh, in the actual broadcast and seeing the, the, the Sony cameras themselves down by, on the court side. Um, as you say, the only problem, really, it was an interesting experiment. I see why they did what they did, but unfortunately, I think it ultimately backfired slightly because it, it, it kind of took away from the, the enjoyment of the game. Because as you say, Phil, unfortunately, you, you couldn't really see, you could only see half of the match, the half that was nearest the camera um, and anything on the far side of the net, just, just you, were, you really weren't, you couldn't see very well. Well, let's hope that they don't give up on it completely because uh, it was, like you say, an interesting experiment. It would be interesting to see um, if they do any further uh, 3D stuff um, because I think for for 3D to to survive and to be a viable uh, option for viewers in the future, it needs uh, companies like the BBC who are uh, publicly funded to get behind it uh, because they're a huge institution and, and whatever the BBC do normally becomes standard practice further down the line. Yeah, it's true, Phil. And I've noticed um, uh, during the day on the BBC HD channel, you know, when it's just showing repeat loops before the actual programming starts later in the evening, that they've been showing um, some um, uh, live music. Well, not live music, but you know, music in a studio, bands playing in 3D, which looked quite nice. Um, obviously, they're using that as test footage. Uh, so hopefully the BBC have got plans to use it for other things too. And not just for um, Wimbledon, but other sporting events, or even uh, you know arts programs, or anything that can add add um, concerts, anything where where 3D can add value, basically. Well, Sky have already done a couple of operas, so uh, maybe they want to play catch up. 
Yeah, well, I mean, Sky is the pioneer with this. So, uh, I mean, they are uh, the the major output for 3D. But even then, it's the same stuff repeated over and over and over again every week. Um, yeah. So if you miss anything in 3D on Sky, don't, <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry, it'll be long again in 10 minutes. Um, but, yeah, it, it's going to take somebody like the BBC uh, to get behind it, I think, for it to become a mainstream uh, broadcast standard in the UK. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, with that one. Um, and if you're interested in the whole 3D thing, and, and we've discussed it a couple of times now, if you go uh, BBC iPlayer in the next uh, seven days, uh, it is uh, BBC Click. If you uh, view the episode from 7th of July, um, Spencer Kelly's done the whole thing over in LA about 3D and so on. Um, it's not as in-depth as I know that a lot of forum members would like, interesting all the same and uh, some of the interviews uh, really good there especially uh, our old friend Rick Dean from THX has some really sensible things to say about the whole 3D thing so if you're interested in that subject matter then do check out that program and also uh, we were talking about smart TVs uh, if you're interested in uh, starting up more conversations about smart TV if you're not sure what it is you want to find out a bit more uh, there is an IPTV forum now on AV forums it's in the television section, so go and have a look at that. Now, to wrap up this month's podcast, AV Forums held the UK's first THX training course in the UK. It was a video calibration course over three days. At level one, we had 31 students. Level two, we had uh, around about 24. Lots of representatives from manufacturers uh, because we managed to get uh, a lot of manufacturers on board with this, which was surprising, but at the same time, I think they, they realise these days the importance of calibration and good pictures and supporting professionals who are in the field uh, installing their screens into people's houses and so on and they want to get the best out of them so Samsung were a sponsor, LG, Panasonic and of course JVC who hosted the whole event and uh, allowed us to use a couple of their professional screens as well as their projectors um, so I think I'm right in saying that I think the day the the course was a success. Um, we've certainly got some great feedback. Now, myself and Steve were there to help uh, with the teaching side of things. So when uh, the students broke out in the groups, we were there for people to ask questions and so on. Uh, but Mark, you sat the course uh, because you hadn't done it before and uh, you were interested to see it from, from the perspective of a student. Uh, so how did it go? Yeah, as I say, I was down on the ground with, with the, uh, the rest of the students and it was definitely a big hit. Uh, with everyone uh, you could you could you could tell how much uh, enjoyment people were getting out of it and, and the interest that the uh, that uh, Greg and Michael were, were generating with their uh, their speeches talks even um, yeah I, I can probably best um, uh, give it some uh, reference here with to compare it to the uh, ISF course that I sat uh, earlier in the year and that was there was a lot more theory in the ISF not to say that THX don't cover it um, but they're much more interested in the uh, practicalities and getting hands-on with the displays there was uh, was there was 12 different displays there to play with at the time some uh, video processors all sorts of different meters to get your hand on different yeah. software to use yeah it was it, it was uh, it's certainly the rec recommended course for anyone that's uh, interested in getting a career in calibration or even as the uh, the ultra keen hobbyist at THX really do emphasize um, hands-on experience, which is which is very important. 
uh, when you're doing calibrations. You know, you can do all the theory in the world that you like, but until you actually get to the grips with some, some displays, you're never going to learn anything. And one of the good things about um, the course was that we had great support from the manufacturers. So as you say, LG, um, Samsung, Panasonic, JVC. So there was lots of different uh, displays, plasmas, LCDs, projectors. Um, there was a Lumagen processor. So lots of things for the guys to, to get, get to grips with, to actually practice using, to get familiar with different manufacturers' approaches to different things like CMS and grayscale calibration. Um, there were enough displays there. I mean, you, you have to do 10 calibrations to get the THX certification. And uh, top marks to Pedro de Silva from Samsung, who did the full three days. And there were enough displays there that he actually managed to get his 10 calibrations done during, during the course. Um, so that gives you a good idea of how, how broad the coverage was in terms of uh, displays available for calibration. Um, also, Steve, uh, I think it's it's good to mention uh, how amenable Greg and Michael were, well, and yourselves, of course, uh, in uh, allowing before hours and after hours um, time to, uh, to get a play with the displays and get some more calibrations in. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Mark. I mean, they were there from 8 a.m. The course starts at 9, and then they were there until whenever you wanted to be there in yeah. the evening to do as much calibration and, and practice as you wanted to do. Yeah, uh, and, and there's no and substitute I, I, for it. No, absolutely. And I'm pretty sure every guy that left, you know, and well, I know for a fact that every guy that left that course at the end of the three days knew how to calibrate a TV or a projector correctly um, and do a full 10-point grayscale calibration and a full CMS. Um, and to be honest, you might not get that from other courses. Well, it was interesting to get the guys over. Um, myself and Steve did the course in Atlanta last year. Um, and like Steve just said, I mean, we thought the course was, was such a good hands-on you know, this is actually how you do it. Yeah, there's the theory. We'll teach you the theory, uh, but this is how you do it. This is uh, the way it's done. A lot of repetition. So, um, you know, you knew exactly what the coordinates were for D65 off your head because you were asked so many times, what are the coordinates? And and those things stick. Um, and like I say, we thought it was such a good course that we wanted to bring it over to the UK. Um, and I've got to say, it was enjoyable, but... Uh, extremely tiring. <laughs> I've never <laughs> felt as tired after a course as I did that week. <laughs> I yeah, said, I, I have to agree. One of the things that I thought was great was that uh, all the manufacturers were working together, um, checking out each other's products, having a look at their different, you know, different displays. Um, uh, it was really good to see everyone working to a common goal, um, from THX themselves to AV forums, uh, to the members, and meeting meeting quite a few members that were on the course. It was good fun. Uh, putting some names to some of the uh, some of the names you, you see quite regularly in the, in the forums, you know, in the threads on the reviews, uh, and the manufacturers themselves. So all all in all, I have to say, I think it was a really successful and really enjoyable four days. Okay, so that was the THX course. If you want more, if you want to find out what the the students thought of the course and so on, there is a video. Um, if you go to the video productions forum, or if you go avforums.tv, or even go to our YouTube uh, channel, there is a video up there from the course with lots of interviews, thoughts, and lots of pictures of people calibrating TVs for the very first time. So I think that's about all we've got time for this month on the Home Cinema Podcast. My thanks to Steve Weathers and Mark Hodgkinson. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Phil. Cheers, Phil. And uh, don't forget, we will be back again next month. Russell will be back next month, and he's had uh, lots of uh, audio equipment through. So uh, I've got a feeling it's going to be audio-heavy next month, and that's got to be a good thing. So join us again soon. I'm Phil Hinton. Take care. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. 
The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.